Hey everybody, I'm Tom Corbett. And I'm Justin St. Louis. And this is Uncommon Deeds. Welcome back, everybody. We have a bit of a different show for you this week. Our scheduled mm-hmm. guest could not join us this week. Unfortunately, it was a late cancellation, and Justin and I have really been pushing our luck in general with how we're scheduling our guests and not giving ourselves a lot of wiggle room if something were to happen. Like something happened this week where the guests fell through and we didn't really have time to to scramble. Though we did scramble and came up with our number one choice for a guest. So it worked out incredibly well. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, this couldn't have gone any better, um, to be honest with you, because this guy is going to bring us from like a C minus to a solid C maybe even a C-plus overall on the program. As Justin is joining us today from his palatious vacation estate uh, in the middle of his vacation. So we are thankful for that as I am just here at my kitchen table. It's uh, It came with a free three-second delay on our Wi-Fi connection. So this means a lot of editing for Tom tonight <laughs> and... Uh, we are an hour and 40 minutes into trying to record this episode. So uh, I'll take all the fall on this one. That's no problem. I, I appreciate that. You taking the fall will not help me at all when it comes to me editing this. So no, that no. was a grand empty gesture, grand empty gesture. Um, yeah. 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 But like I said, it's going to be a little bit different. Emotionally. This week. I have your back. Thank you. Uh, it is going to be a little bit different this week. We are going to talk to our guests, kind of like we normally do, in terms of background, telling stories. But we're also going to be giving you a bit of a preview and letting the host tell you about our upcoming podcast that will be on Uncommon Deeds. So a couple different angles here for today's guest. Yeah, it's um, this is two things built into one. And um, should we introduce the guy now? I mean, let's just roll with it, right? I suppose we can just get right to it. So I guess that's where I say it is now time for Justin to make today's introduction. Okay. He is, I think, a five-time feature winner at Thunder Road, uh, a former winner of the Eddie Carroll Sportsmanship Award, and uh, just one of the good guys to have around in the pit area, um, whether racing is happening or not. Um, I don't have any other stats to read, but uh, he's one of the best dudes I've ever known. And we are super happy to be welcoming to the Uncommon Media fold, not just on Uncommon Deeds, but uh, in our future projects, Al the Professor Maynard. Uh, hey, buddy. Hey, how you guys doing? Yeah, if we some get of us better episode, than others. We'll be doing great. <laughs> yeah, it's a real pleasure, man. I obviously I'm a fan and I've been listening to all the all the podcasts and um actually working my way through on the second time. So um it's uh yeah, it's a real pleasure and I really appreciate you guys reaching out. And we hinted well, at it 
few weeks ago, or whenever it was, that we had a new project coming that Justin and I were not going to host, help a little bit in the back. I'm going to edit it, but you're going to be completely at the helm. I don't know if we mentioned who the host was going to be when we teased it there last month, but we reached out to you, and you were pretty gung-ho. We were actually in the car on the way back from interviewing Russ Ingerson, who we were just talking about before we hit record, and Justin was all jazzed up, and I was jazzed up because Justin had just left with his Russ Ingerson's very first trophy he ever won. It was sitting in the back of the Volvo, and we're like, and we were talking. Ridiculous! What if we just had someone host a street stock podcast like once a month or once every couple weeks? And he's like, "I'm telling you, I'll do it." You know what? I'm going to text him. And Justin texted you. And I think within about 30 seconds, you texted back, like, shit, I'm in. Let's go. Let's do it. We didn't even <laughs> no. discuss it. No. It was the easiest decision ever. Well, I, I, as a professor, in the summer, I work weekly in W-E-A-K. So I got some time, you know, amongst being like a select board <laughs> member, uh, coach, uh, an athletic trainer for sports teams at Fairfax and all these other jobs, but... My main gig is is obviously on downtime during the summer. So um, it used to be filled with racing, and now it can be just in a different way. So I'm really excited about it. Al, um, you came from a vastly different background as in terms of um, how racing became involved. Well, became the thing that you do. Um, maybe not so different because I think, like all of us, it started on TV but you didn't grow up in the grandstands at Thunder Road. Uh, you grew up out in uh, central and western New York. Yeah. Um, I grew up in the in the grandstands of Watkins Glen. I mean, that's where my first race was. And I, I mean, my first racing memory. Well, my, my dad had taken me to some uh, dirt tracks like Smithport and other stuff around the Pennsylvania line and stuff like that. And um, I've been involved in demolition derbies. My dad was a Allegheny County champion and went to the largest demolition derby um, in the world at Syracuse state fair. Um, so we had some different motorsports things <laughs> going on. Um, but yeah. And then, you know, I lived in Florida and Tampa for a while before moving to Vermont and um, raced motocross and supercross there. Uh, same track as Ricky Carmichael. Some of you might remember his name, not just from motocross fame, but also some NASCAR fame. And, you know, and then came here and was like, I had a concussion I in motocross. I a long time and I did not know that. Yeah. And uh, I had a pretty bad concussion in motocross. And so and I always liked stock car racing and always wanted to do it. And so um, I grew up in the grandstands of Watkins Glen. And my first race was like, I think it was... It was uh, Rusty Wallace and Ricky Rudd, you know, nose to tail, cross the fats, the start finish line. And the next time they came around to take the checkered flag, there was like no body panels left on either car. They had leaned on each other in every corner. And I just looked at my dad and was like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And we went back every year. And I think the only year I've missed since then, there's almost 30 straight years, by the way, is um, my, I was in Cancun with my wife, whom I just married because we were on our honeymoon. So the grandstands I grew up in were, were, were Watkins Glen and some short tracks, dirt tracks in particular, um, around Belmont, New York, where I grew up. But um, that's kind of the arc of 
of my kind of motorsports background is from field cars that were my dad's demolition derby cars in the farm up through, you know, supercross motocross. And then, uh, you know, interestingly enough, like meeting you, Justin is what got me into this whole thing. I'm not even sure I would be otherwise. Like I met you and Eddie, uh, companion and like, that's basically where it really started as far as thunder road. Um, I don't know if you tell that story better if I do, as I recall, it was the, uh, you know, when UVM went to the tournament. So this was probably 2005. You were um, fairly new to the area, mm-hmm. as I recall, um, you know, having just taken a job at UVM within the last maybe year or two. Mm-hmm. And through a mutual friend, Jason Pichet, um, we all were in Massachusetts for the uh, for the tournament. And we ended up meeting you at what has become known as bizarro friendlies in Mm. the Springfield area. Um, And it was just a weird, weird restaurant and it turned into a really weird, fun dinner. Uh, And you asked, Hey, what do you guys do? And we said, Oh, we like racing. And you're like, okay, I'm in. And uh, where do you do that? And we mentioned Thunder Road. You'd heard of it. And we uh, said, oh, this guy should race a warrior car. They had just started the division maybe a year or two before that. And by the end of that half hour, 45 minute dinner, you had a racing career started. Yeah, it's funny because um, listening to the Russ Ingerson episode, as you were just talking about, I think how he got into it is he was talking to his girlfriend or something and said, I'd really like to do that. And what she said was, well, why don't you? And basically I had the same conversation with Eddie, yeah. like with you guys, I'm like, well, I'd really like to do that. And Eddie literally looked at me and said, well, what's stopping you? I still remember it. Like it was yesterday and he was right. I'm like, well, what's stopping me? Not much, I guess, like go get a car. And these are the rules. And I think you like emailed me the rules from like, I don't know what kind of email account you're using back then. Something wacky, probably like uh, Yahoo or something. And, uh, and so I get, I get the rules. I'm like, all right, let's figure this thing out. And so, um, and interestingly enough, like living in Fairfax, the, the, there was a bunch of race car drivers around here, but I had just gotten my oil changed at KMC auto, which is Kevin Campbell's place. And he's obviously for most people around here know that he's moved down to Charlotte and um, they're doing their racing stuff down there now, but that's how I got into it. I, and without him, there's no chance that I actually get it done. I mean, I literally walked back in from my oil change the day before and said, hey, I know you race at Thunder Road, and I'm interested in building a Warrior. And he he ran into his computer and pulled up the pulled up the rules and said, all right, I got a buddy of mine with a roll cage. We're going to go there this afternoon and cut it out of this car. And these are the kind of cars you got to look for. Um, and this is the place where you ought to look. And we literally just, I, I didn't really know him yet. <laughs> I think he would help anybody with race cars from like Wiener that worked there or Marvin Johnson or anybody that wanted, you know, uh, Craig Bushy was always hanging out there. I mean, it was just tons of people there all the time. And um, I got to know them later, but um, we literally went with a Sawzall and cut a roll cage out of a car and I bought a different car and we, he welded it all in together. I mean, if it wasn't for him, there's no chance I get that first race car built. So um, it was a Mitsubishi Gallant. And I think you named it the Mitsubishi. Sure was. Yeah. 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 How long did it take that car to come together? Man, super fast. I mean, uh, probably about a week. And the weird part was, is that um, we bought it from some shady dude. 
in Williston and uh, my neighbor had a flatbed uh, towing business and auto body stuff. And he kind of grabbed it and we dragged it up. Um, and when we pulled it off of the, the rollback, it was just fluid, just puking out of it. I don't know what the heck. And it had blown up transmission. So in Kevin Campbell style, he goes straight on to, you know, into his computer and was looking around and said, all right, there's one in wherever state. He's like, we got to get it shipped here. And this is how much it costs. And he's like, and so, and, and in his eyes, and he, he was like, so there's no way we're doing this. Cause that would be stupid. You, you spent more on shipping a transmission here than you paid for the whole car. Like that's dumb was what his eyes said to me. And I said, all right, let's do it. And then from then we've been best friends. <laughs> like that was pretty much like instantly he knew he was like, all right, this guy's nuts. And so this ought to work out just fine. And so, um, yeah. And it was like, after we had built that car, I think it was the next year is when Wiener started working for him. So Wiener Hennequin came into the picture. And so, yeah, it was kind of all took off after that. It was, uh, it's been, it was an interesting start. Um, and it's funny how, a lot of the stories that you guys have told through your episodes, it just happenstance how some of these things just fall together. And uh, it's the same story for me too, which is, which has been pretty cool. I wouldn't change anything for sure. So as you turn into having your own podcast about street stocks, how many of those stories are you looking forward to hear? Kind of the, cause it even just talking to people that we've talked to in our episodes who started in street stocks, we'll talk about how much more camaraderie or willingness there is for everyone to help each other than there is as they progress on to higher divisions. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's true and it's become more and more true as I've, you know, once I've kind of semi retired and, or gone part time and worked with other folks, um, you know, working with different people at different levels, you know, it, you can definitely see that. Um, the difference is, is that everyone has a story to tell. Everyone is a character of some kind. And, you know, if you talk to someone long enough, you'll learn something new about them that's interesting, that probably connects you to something else. And as those stories weave together, um, that's what's really cool. And so it's funny because I'm looking at the list of people here and so I raced street stocks against, let's see, Jason Corliss. Um, Nick Sweet worked on mine once because we really tore it up bad once. Um, I, you know, I've worked with a bunch of people or raced against a bunch of people. Um, Brandon Lamphere, Dwayne's son. You're going down through the right. list of our podcast guests. Yeah. I mean, I have a connection to most of them. And whether I've raced against them or raced against their kid or something like Brian Hoare, like Eddie was in the car and the, my, my crew chief, Eddie companion was in the, in the truck when they hit the moose, like that was in the moose story. Like it's so many funny connections that, um, that happened that I feel like, you know, everyone's got a story. We'll talk to them. Um, the camaraderie is there. Like I have a lot of relationships with a lot of the current drivers as well as drivers that have, you know, climbed the ladder. Um, so I feel like, you know, those stories need to be told too. And um, if if some of these folks are at least as interesting um, to talk to as they are behind the wheel, <laughs> it should be it should be a pretty good run. You have um, undoubtedly seen some wild ass stuff in that division, that street stock class. You were in there for 
I don't know, you raised street stocks for 10 years, 12 years, more than that? Yeah, on and off, I guess. It's funny because I'm the worst at remembering that kind of stuff and you're the best. So it's kind of, we might make a good team. Uh, but um, yeah, it's, I mean, on and off for about a about a decade. I took a couple of years off when my daughter was born. Um, when I broke my wrist, I missed the rest of that season. I actually didn't miss it. I, I made the last couple of uh, races. I actually remember they had that weird six cylinder division and that's my other feature. Yeah. So I have five street stock wins, but my first race back, I still had my wrist brace on and um, they had that killer B car. What was the name of that division? I can't remember what that was. Rough riders. Rough riders. Rough that's riders. right. So they had a bunch of track cars. And so I asked Curly if I could get into one of them to kind of feel out my wrist and see how I do. And um, got in there and then I won that, but I could have run it like I could have won it running away. And so I always remember a lot of the stories that some of your other folks had told, like, don't stink up my show. And so I had about a half a lap on them. And then I was like, I better start slowing down because this is ridiculous. And so I still, <laughs> I still eked out a win um, and didn't stink up Tom's show. And um, that was a, that was, that was kind of another, that was another one of those wins that I had. It was kind of like I had the trophy, but uh, I think I gave that one to my daughter or whatever. Who knows where it's been recycled since? But um, yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's been a wild ride, that's for sure. Not knowing uh, any of the, any of the guys from Thunder Road, and Wiener Hennequin walks into Kevin Campbell's shop for the first time when you're there. You must be like, what in the what the hell am I doing? <laughs> well. <laughs> Yes. And, um, I mean, I, I kind of knew him because I had raced, I had raced that one year kind of part-time though with the, um, warrior division. Um, and I, you know, I didn't make all the races. I mean, it, we did about two thirds of them maybe. And, um, I kind of knew him from there because Kevin was also, he had just built a street stock. And so Kevin was back from racing late models and then he got injured and then he, he was out of it for a long time while his kids were growing up. And then um, was just getting back into it. And so he had, he had built a Mustang, I think, a year or two or the year after that. So I kind of, we were kind of overlapping that time where I kind of knew Wiener anyway. And then, uh, like you said, he showed up. He had some teeth then, um, certainly none now, but he had some at the time. And so um, it, was, uh, it was interesting. And I think one of the best jokes was like um, Kevin always telling him that he needed, his hat needed an oil change. Stuff like that. You can't, everyone kind of took shots at Wiener. <laughs> that was, uh, it was good times. We, uh, we had good times, but I'll tell you what, you know, f- guy knows his way around any car, but around a Mustang, like it's pretty amazing exactly what that guy knows, what you can and can't do and what you should and shouldn't do around one of those. Um, it's actually amazing to watch him work and he helped me a lot too. I mean, Kevin was running a business and so, you know, Wiener, even though his 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 tag on his uh, uniform said Billy, no one called him Billy. And uh, but he helped a lot, man. Like we helped each other. You know, he, if he had a bill at RPM that couldn't get his motor and he had a blown motor, like eh, I helped him out. And then he helped me on my car. And we kind of, you know, we just kind of had that relationship all along. And so um, but it uh, didn't mean that he wouldn't rough you up in practice because, you know, he had to win every lap in practice, but he, uh, yeah, he, he's an interesting fellow, but, uh, but I would say like, as far as, 
you know, being the butt of some of the jokes at the shop and stuff like that. He always took it well. And um, if you needed help, he'd be right there to help you. So um, he's a great guy. And as much as folks don't know a lot about him behind the scenes, they just think he's kind of a crazy driver. He's a crazy person too, but he's actually a really good guy. And something tells me that people are going to learn more about him throughout your podcast. Yeah. I feel like everyone's got a wiener story. So there might be a way to weave, weave a segment in there. I mean, it all takes shape over time. Jew is who knows. Um, but my guess is this is not the last time uh, that we'll talk about Wiener Hennequin. Now mm-hmm. you mentioned your kids. You have a couple beautiful kids, a lovely wife. How did they enjoy your racing hobby? Well, at first there were no kids, and so it didn't. It wasn't as big of a deal. My wife's always been super supportive of everything, and um, even when I had that that really that injury in motocross was more than just a concussion. I mean, I had separated ribs and I, the guy that I raced with was a physician. And so, you know, I was borrowing one of his bikes, which I wadded up pretty bad and um, including my body, I guess too. And so, um, you know, I had to call her and tell her I wasn't coming home that night. And, and so when I said, when we moved here and I said, you know, I think I'm going to go stock car race. And she's like, Oh, Okay. That was about it. Like she, she's like, I know you're crazy. I've known you your whole life. We're high school sweethearts. And so, uh, so, you know, Christy was like, well, if that's what you want to do, cool. And so that's the way she's always been. And um, it's funny you mentioned the kids too, because, you know, I, I, I took the time off when Dahlia was born and then, um, and, you know, you know, I just feel like you know, family is important and all that. And um, now when I ask them, like, now that I'm not racing, they both would rather that I race, not to get me out of the house, but they really like going to Thunder Road. They like rooting for me, and um, I think it's a source of pride for them. So they really enjoyed going to the track. I'm not sure Christy loves going to the track, <laughs> but um, the kids really did, and they still miss it, and they still talk about it. Um, and even Dahlia, I mean, she, I think she has as many feature victories as I do in, the, in her uh, go-kart, and so... She won the the mini milk bowl. I think she won all her segments too. So I think it's her and what Dave Dion I think was what won all the sections. Yeah, um, won, won yeah, all the segments. So, and Larry Demar. So that's yeah. So there's a few the folks. That's it. <laughs> that's right. And Dahlia Maynard um, yeah. is uh, the other one. Of course, Dahlia. it was on a Dahlia, uh, but in a go kart. But uh, and she was in second in that last segment. I'm like, I'm saying, I told her you don't have to win all three. I'm pretty sure you got this one locked up. And she wasn't having it. it. Was a pass in the grass for for winning all segments. So um, she made it happen. So yeah, they're still racing. There are those no kids. clean passes on that little track. <laughs> that track is the smallest, tightest, wackiest track ever. Um, but those kids have a blast, and that's that's fun for me too. Um, especially when we took the race to read program and kind of and you know help the carding kids along with that too. And that was one of the reasons that I was there was to to make sure that those kids were reading books too. And that we were talking to them every week about that. So that was um, the carding and the family. And I guess, you know, I would say the family was always into the racing stuff. Um, and Christy would kind of just bite her tongue and take the kids to the track. She doesn't really like loud noises. And um, she, we don't have a lot of good luck when she shows up to stuff. I'm not going to lie. My first baseball game, That's I think true. in high school, I got hit in the face with a fastball and left an ambulance. My first baseball game in college, she showed up. I dislocated my shoulder uh, I'm pretty sure when she came to the track was my first rollover where Biffer like hooked us when I was putting him a lap down and hooked me. And I went ass over tea kettle over the 
over three and four there. I think that was her first race of the year. So, yeah, we don't have a long, long history of her having positive I, I outcomes her happen around her. in the grandstands one time. <laughs> and you just totally destroyed the car. And I was like, okay, I'll see you later. But I was up there for five minutes. And it was like, she's like, yeah, we just got here. And uh, Al's wrecked. So, okay. So let's see the, uh, you know, the, the race to read program uh, was a big deal for a long time at Thunder Road. And you were pretty integral uh, as far as the development of that and really getting it off the ground. And I don't know if a lot of people realize that, but um, you were there behind the scenes for most of that deal. Well, obviously Troy Kingsbury was, uh, was the kind of real driving force in the beginning and his green lantern car and all that jazz and um, super guy. And then him working with Ken Squire to secure the funds, to be able to, you know, have someone that was going out to schools and stuff like that. So really it was, it was Ken Squire and, um, and Troy Kingsbury that really got it started for sure. And once they had it rolling, um, you know, he had invited me in and I was kind of reluctant cause I was, that was the time where I was thinking about getting out. Um, and it was actually one of the things that kept me in was kind of that resurgence of, you know, why am I here? Because, you know, we'd won a bunch of races and we, you know, finished in the top five in points. And it was kind of like, I, I was kind of done with it. And then when that came along, it really kind of re-energized me into, into doing that. And so um, I was just one piece of the puzzle um, it kind of picked up where Troy left off because um, he kind of retired after that semi-retired, I guess. Um, and I kind of picked up where he left off at least as best I could because, you know, he was awesome with the kids and I really loved engaging with, with the children too. And so, um, yeah, I served as the vice president as Ken kind of stepped down when, when Ashley Squire moved back to Vermont, you know, she, she stepped in to help out too. And so that's how I met Robbie Crouch too, which is kind of hilarious. Cause you talk about not growing up in the stands of Thunder Road. I didn't know Robbie Crouch from a manhole cover and, and, you know, AJ's like, here's my boyfriend, Robbie. I'm like, Oh, Hey, I'm Al. And she's like, yeah, he's kind of a big deal around here. And I'm like, okay. And so this is, <laughs> I meet Robbie Crouch, which, you know, these are how these things happen sometimes. Um, but that was, you know, obviously your first episode. And so I had a connection to that too. I feel like all the uncommon deeds episodes, like I'm the Forrest Gump of the history of them because I have some silly little cameo in each, <laughs> each one of the stories somewhere. And so meeting Robbie um, through Ashley and stuff, I mean, that was where we had a lot of meetings um, talking to, to AJ and um, having Ken there and Troy and, you know, really putting things together to try to keep expanding that program. And so um, being away from the track now, I'm away from that, but I've really met some awesome people through that. Robbie Crouch being one of them. Um, quick story about that. I was at, we were meeting at their new house when they just moved into water, their house in Waterbury. Um, we were getting done with our meeting and I guess um, AJ's son had his Xbox there. He was there for some time and, and Robbie was like playing Forza or something on Xbox. And we got done with the meeting and he's like, you want to race against me? And I was like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll race against you. And I hadn't, I don't even have an Xbox. Um, and, and don't I beat Robbie Crouch in my first ever race against him on Xbox. And I was like, well, I have to go home now. I don't think I can, you know, I think you want to rematch. And I was like, I'm going out one and oh against Robbie Crouch. And that's just how it's going to be. And I think I texted you a picture of it there, Justin. I think Dahlia had snapped oh, yeah. a picture. She was at the meeting yeah. too. So I think you and Eddie were like, oh my God. And I was like, man, I just, you know, beat this guy in some video game racing. It wasn't a big deal. And, uh, and I thought you guys were 
maybe more impressed by it than I was. But uh, so yeah, there's. <laughs> I beat Robbie Crouch. We're one and zero. I never gave him that rematch just because I didn't. I didn't think I wanted to lose. So. So it seems like a big driving force for you is you have to be fully invested in whatever you're doing. You seem like someone who needs to be challenged, whatever may be intellectually, or there has to be a real motivation for you to do something. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I, I've never done much halfway, you know, you just, you're kind of all in, um, being around athletics my whole life as a street three sport athlete in high school. And then, you know, playing a little baseball in college and then being able to, um, as an athletic trainer, be on the sidelines of some really competitive teams. Um, that's the reason I became an athletic trainer is to, you know, practice my flavor of sports medicine around, you know, high end athletes. And so I've always been around, been around being competitive and wanting championships and coaches that I really admire and still have as close friends, whether they're from Tampa or UVM or wherever uh, places I've been, I really have the relationships with the folks that are the most competitive, but also really great people. And so for me, I think the athletic background, as well as, you know, a lot of people that have been in my life, I just always have this kind of, it's all or nothing. And it's, you've got to get to the top of the mountain. And so you know, the irony of it in racing is that, you know, I, I feel like we threw as much as we ever could at it as a race team in, in the street stock division and, you know, came up, came up one point short of Tommy Thunder one year. And that was the closest we ever got to a championship. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that go into that. Um, some of it's luck, some of it's equipment. So, you know, I think we overcame a fire that year, <laughs> missed the, <laughs> Eddie rewired the whole car. We had electrical fire before the heat, missed the heat. Eddie rewired the whole car. We got to the feature. I think we went from like 18th to 4th or something like that. And that year, we never finished outside the top 10 in the whole season. And we had a couple before that preceding that. So we had a stretch of more than a whole season where we were finishing in the top 10. And, um, you know, like that, that to me, those are all wins um, as far as putting your best effort out there um, and just kind of coming up short. But in essence, like I was never going to really do it unless we really had a chance of winning uh, races and winning championships. And we were right there all the time. Um, but I guess it kind of goes full circle back to um, what we talked about before, which is how the divisions might be different, or at least how people look at street stocks, which is, you know, people, people lean on each other. They help each other out. Um, you build really great relationships with folks. And um, that's kind of, that's kind of what we were able to do. And um, I think that's as fulfilling as any of the trophies we have is the friendships we've made. You know, we, after super Joe died, who was basically the, the go-to guy for any part that you needed for a Ford Mustang. Like we had every part, we had two or three of everything. So we became the parts trailer. And so everyone would come to us if they needed something like steering rack. Yep. Got that distributor cap. Sure. Like we would have everything anybody might need and we're happy to, to share it. And so um, that to me is, is also a part like being a good competitor, but being a good person and a good friend and a good colleague. And um, those are all important things we try to do our best at too. And so, you know, that's why I think probably the Eddie Carroll award was probably my favorite award. Um, we got a lot of bigger trophies and stuff, but um, you know, that was a, that was an important one too. So for me, you know, being all in 
isn't just, you know, trophies for winning races. It's all those other things too. And so I would really cherish the the friendships we built and uh, the things we've done there too. I think we went all in on that too. So I will say this about the street stock division. Um, I don't remember 90% of my races, but I remember hanging out at the trailers after I remember hanging out in the parking lots during milk bowl weekend or labor day weekend or whatever. Um, you know, Eddie was the best man in my wedding. I met him at the racetrack. You read, you know, a, a passage at my wedding. I met you at the race or because of the racetrack. Um, Tom and I are best buddies because of the racetrack. You know, it wasn't street stocks, but um, you know, the, the relationships, just like what you're saying, but how do you balance? I was not in a position where I was winning all kinds of races. I wanted to be competitive, but you were a championship contender, you know, legitimate one. How do you balance a competitive fire with being the parts trailer or, you know, getting the Eddie Carroll award? How does that happen? And one doesn't bleed over into the other and and muddy the waters and make it difficult to shake a guy's hand after he took you out a week before. Well, I think you're talking about two different things. So like (laughs) helping people out and stuff like that, like that's easy. Like that's, to me, I never thought twice about it. If someone needed a part, no problem. I, I didn't even, even if I didn't like them for whatever reason, um, or, you know, we had a skirmish on the track at some point, you know, I, that it just never came, came to light that I wouldn't do something like that, or I would withhold having a part that someone needed or, um, you know, I, that just never came to me. Like I would always want to help out. So that's, that's that part. Um, and the other part would be like, you know, how do you reconcile when someone roughed you up? And, you know, in that division, I don't know, you're a stats guy, but my guess is 90% of those are just accidents. Like people just, you know, they screwed up and probably half of those, they actually knew what they did. <laughs> the other half, they're like, oh, what happened? Like they'll come to your trailer and ask you what happened. It's like, well, insert name here. Uh, I was, going into turn one and out of nowhere, you hooked me into the fence and ended our milk bowl. Uh, why are you asking me what happened? <laughs> you hooked me. So like those conversations definitely happen. And um, do I hold some grudges with some folks? Eh, I don't hold grudges, but you know, like I'm not going to run over to the trailer and say, how you doing buddy? <laughs> so there's, there's, there's a difference there between, you know, reconciling when you have skirmishes with people on the track um, but most of it's around respect. Like that, that part of it is like, if someone comes up to you and says, Hey man, I'm sorry. You know, it doesn't matter if they destroyed your car. They apologize. I'm into that. I have respect for that. Um, and mistakes happen. You know, if someone's going for more than they should have gotten, like I get that. And, and hopefully they learn. And that's, and as an educator, like that's me, like I would talk to them about even early on when I didn't have a ton of experience, but certainly later in the stages of my career, like, yeah, I, I will help you out with what you ought to do. And for the most part, people would listen. And those, and those that didn't or thought they knew better or really were adversarial with me, they're still climbing the fence and destroying cars. And so, you know, that happens too. So I, I really like working with people, especially those that want to listen and get better. And um, I, I feel like we've helped some folks along uh, the way for sure. And with street stocks, it is probably more unique than almost any other division. Cause you could have, you know, half the field that are the Al Maynard's, the Tommy thunders, the Jamie Davis's who have been there 
that seemed like forever and are incredibly experienced. And then you have half the field that may be in a car for the first time in their lives on a racetrack, you know, those really true rookies. And it almost, I would think, makes you almost have to concentrate more as you're going through the field. You're trying to remember, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. I could probably get away with this. This person's brand new. I should probably be careful trying this. That's absolutely true. <laughs> and what's one of the reasons I really enjoyed that division was that, you know, you knew you had people that didn't have much experience. And again, as a teacher, like I, I would want to just to help them out. And I, you know, it's fine. And, and honestly, there's some ulterior motive in there. And I think you heard that from some of your other uh, drivers in the other episodes. Hey, I don't want to, I don't want this roadblock in front of me on a restart. So if you can't find your way around this track, that actually hurts me oftentimes. So I want you to be faster. And so I think that happens in a lot of divisions and a lot of levels. Um, but yeah, you definitely have to keep your eyes peeled and, you know, listening to different episodes so far and, and uncommon deeds, like you can, you can hear guys saying like, well, I'm going to work with that person. Cause I, you know, I don't want them to be in the way and, or, you know, I'm just a friendly guy and I just want to help people. So I think that's, that's true in racing in general. And maybe it's less so in late models now than it used to be. Um, but that, that's, what's cool about street stocks is it, it's still there, but having to keep an eye on people is, I think it's true for any division. Cause there's always going to be new people and new equipment for the first time. Um, but people that are in the, in a race car for the very first time, that's always going to be interesting. So, you know, you practice with them, you do it every week. So you get a pretty quick gauge on, you know, who does what and who doesn't, and you start building those relationships. And, uh, but yeah, that's, you know, I think that that skill difference in there or speed difference, um, that's always a part of any kind of racing. Uh, and in street stocks, you definitely have to, you have to be looking ahead and, and predicting like any division. But um, yeah, there's definitely some folks that uh, are are new and you got to work around them and, um, but also help them along. That's kind of, it's kind of my way. Who's your favorite rookie that you took under your wing? Man. Or that was willing to learn underneath the tree. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, man, there's a lot. I wouldn't say that. Well, the person I would pick, I, I'm just going to say because it comes to mind pretty much instantly, is also the guy that's turned the fastest lap there in a late model, MJ Gravel. I mean, I basically handed him his first street stock win. He won't say that. I have no idea how how I got out of shape leading by like eight car lengths and then having him pass me, but I was all alone out front and I somehow threw that race away for him and he, for him. I mean, he was in second place. He was working good, but um, even though his dad was a late model driver with, you know, with wins, he would always listen. And his dad wouldn't be like, don't listen to that guy. Like, listen to me. Like we would always, I don't know how, or I, I think it was because we ran so close. Um, they had built an amazing car. Um, interesting story around that too. We might get to, but like I, they built a great car. They knew what they were doing. They, and, but they were new to it. I mean, like he had raced go-karts, I think before that, you know? And so, and it wasn't even at Thunder Road. And so he, you know, they, they had a lot to learn with Mustangs. Um, and, and Eddie and I knew Eddie knew a heck of a lot more than me and still does obviously, but, um, but you know, what to do and how to get around Thunder Road and a Mustang, you know, they, they leaned on us. They're smart. Like we were good. Um, and it was interesting and unique because, again, they had so much racing history in the family um, at the highest levels even around here. And um, we're still open to listening. And and so, yeah, it was 
I think MJ Gravel probably was the one that really, you know, I, it's it's funny to kind of say take under your wing, but he's a younger dude, and um, he was new to a, to a Mustang and new to the division and the track, even though his dad wasn't, um, but still friends with their whole family. Um, you know, it's always a trailer you got to go to and hang out, and his mom always has something to give me, whether it's a cookie or a candy bar, so I'm sure he's trying to fat me up. Um, but, yeah, the MJ is probably the one that I would think of, but there's so many, like, and I wouldn't say they were all under my wing and so I'm so great, but just, you know, talking to, to folks and trying to help them out no matter what it is. Um, it was just kind of a thing we did. So it was so often I can't really think of it, but yeah, MJ, I think is the one that, that comes to mind. Um, and I mean, obviously he's, he's doing pretty good now, so <laughs> I won't take any credit for that though. So, you know, you've, hinted at it several times and and that story certainly leads into it um that you have a job and a passion um as a teacher um tell us you know tell everybody what you do what you do for work yeah so well i mentioned i have a lot of jobs um but my my gainful employment comes from the university of vermont hence ken squire giving me the the name the professor um, so yeah, I'm an, I'm a professor at the University of Vermont in the College of Nursing and Health Sciences. Um, I was the director of the athletic training program for a long time and then have grab, gravitated a little bit away from the sports medicine side of things where I used to teach like therapeutic modalities, like how do you use ultrasound and electrical stimulation and lasers to try to help tissue repair, um, and, and I've, and stuff like that. And I've kind of moved more into, um, teaching kind of general healthcare courses. And so one of my biggest and most interesting courses for me right now is called racism and health disparities. Um, and so we, we look at that and take deep dives on, on what that looks like historically and what, what we can do to try to uh, fix that moving forward. Um, and another one of my favorite courses I teach right now is social justice and sport. And so there's a lot of stuff going on around that too. And so, um, those are my two favorite courses that I teach now, and they're slightly away from kind of my athletic training and sports medicine background. Um, but I'm I'm having a blast teaching those courses, and um, even though a lot of them are online, I actually enjoy teaching online, and um, that's that's my gainful employment, <laughs> I suppose. I'm going to press on this for a moment, and I and I hope that it's I'm not out of line. Um, I don't think that I will be, and I, I'm you know, having known you, I think you'll probably be cool with this, but um, you know, your kids are black and given the the course that you just mentioned that you teach um, you know, with your daughter Dahlia racing in a very white state uh, how have you used any of that personal experience um, or, or have you had uh, you know, the unfortunate circumstance of having to have personal experience with that um well not around her i would say i've heard the n-word at the track plenty of times um and for me personally i you know i'm going to challenge someone on that uh if it's a joke i'm not going to laugh we're going to talk about it i'm going to tell people how i feel about it and where i'm coming from and in some small ways i think you know engaging with folks like that that you know may use racial racial slurs just as their normal vernacular might change their ways in some way. And so I feel like perhaps I have a, a fingerprint on, on a handful of folks at Thunder Road, which, which I think would be a, a great outcome. Um, at the track with Dahlia in particular, there weren't any episodes that um, 
I mean, she's a kid. Um, so I don't, <laughs> there was nothing there that, um, that I worried about, but I can tell you that, you know, when you, when you have children of color and you're in a very white state and frankly, you're in a very white sport, um, you know, you, and you do what I do. I mean, I literally teach racism. Like you have a heightened sense of things around you. Um, you know, microaggressions or small things that people say and how they say them. Uh, you know, you, you can pick up on that kind of stuff because uh, your radar is, is hot for it. And so I wouldn't say for her at the track, but me at the track, you know, and it's, and it's different because people see me and they wouldn't think that my, my kids are, are black. So, you know, it, you never know what's going to come out of some folks. mouths. it just kind of happens, but um, you know, you, you know, you kind of navigate through that stuff and hopefully leave things better than you found them. It's just kind of like the state park motto, you know? So you just kind of do your best and work through that stuff. But in general, I, I've found that, um, you know, it's a really, it's a really great place. It's a great sport. We love Vermont. Um, we love Thunder Road. Um, we love all the tracks we've been at, but you know, all the way from NASCAR, all the way down, there's a long history of, of challenges around race. And all you have to do is follow Bubba Wallace's Twitter feed, which he doesn't delete anything from it so that it's safe for history. And, you know, you can see how a lot of people feel. Um, and although they might cloak it in things other than the color of his skin, again, my radar is pretty hot for this kind of stuff. And, you know, when pressed, you can get to the bottom of these things. Um, but I also believe that people aren't inherently bad. And as an educator, I feel like part of my duty is, you know, to engage with folks and try to try to bring them along or try to understand them better. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of how I look at it, at least my experience um, with it thus far. Do you take any pride in people look from the outside at racing one way? And then, you know, even when you get down, and you're talking street stocks and. You know, you made the joke about Wiener had teeth at one point and now he doesn't. And people tend to look at the street stocks as being one thing Mm -hmm. and putting everybody in this box. And probably as we would look at it, it's not a flattering box. (laughs) Uh, Do you take pride in being like, hey, I'm actually very well educated and I can debate with you about whatever you want to talk about and we can have intelligent conversations and well, but you're also not the only one in that division who's, you know, graduated high school for Christ's sake. It's, <laughs> there's a lot of smart, intelligent, you know, well-rounded people in that, in that group. Sure. Um, and you know, you know, people tend to look at it a certain way and honestly, you know, that might work for the track too, you know, like, you know, there's a ragtag bunch, you know, as Dave Moody said, they call them the crunch bunch. It's basically what, what we are. Um, and so you kind of get painted in a certain way, but, um, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of folks there. And for me, I, I mean, I don't take pride in, in being more educated. I, I work around a lot of people with, with doctorates that aren't particularly bright. I'm not gonna lie. Like hopefully they don't watch this. If they know that I'm talking about them, then, you know, but yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't take supreme intelligence to, to pile up degrees like a thermometer. I can tell you that for sure. So um, although I work in higher ed and I think it is very valuable, um, I have a lot of uh, feelings about how folks ought to be in that or not. If you really want to be a welder, you, you might make more than I do. 
that's fine. That's good. You should go do that. And I encourage that. Um, so, you know, from all walks of life and, and, you know, like levels of education, I think, honestly, I think racing is one of the great equalizers of all those things. And so, um, and maybe in the street stock division, you have, you know, the bookends of that, you know, you, you might have, um, a great disparity in someone's education, but that doesn't mean anything when you strap in. And so that to me might be the most important and interesting part about, especially the street stocks. Well, then I guess that, that leads us into where we're headed with you. Uh, the crunch bunch podcast. Um, you know, this is going to be a new thing here on, on our channel. Um, we are really excited about it. We've been talking about it for, you know, like Tom said, uh, hell, we interviewed Russ Engerson in April, um, and we've been working on this since then. And uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, I, I'm just I'm psyched for it because I I know a lot of these guys. I raced with a lot of these guys. I looked up to a lot of these guys when I was ten, twelve years old, and my father was racing with them. Um, and to be on, I, I'm to be on a feature win list with a guy like Tommy Thunder or a guy like Eric Johnson, who, you know, was not my favorite guy when I raced with him. I think he's a pretty cool guy now. Um, Joe Small wiped the floor with us. Dan Nolan, you know, just killed us. Um, but then go back even further and you've got the Gibbs brothers, who I just thought were way up here on the mountain. Um, and, you know, Dennis Griffin and Terry Roy and just the, the pioneers, the Martin brothers, the pioneers of that four-cylinder class. Wayne Wojtyna for crying out loud, the Polish cannon. Um, but it goes through to your, I'm going to say that you and I raced in two different generations, uh, excuse me, of that division. Um, and now there's an, another generation that has come through after you. Um, and that whole class for 30 years almost has been just full, full, full of characters. And I'm super excited that you're the guy who's going to get to unravel all of that. I can hear your excitement, but you can't match the excitement that I have for yeah. it because like you said, like when you called or I don't even think you'd finished, you know, typing the text about what do you think about this? And I was like, I'm in because this is, uh, this is cool. There's so many stories that need to be told. And, and the funny part is, you know, I pull up the stats, which you like, and I'm, I'm kind of like dance around a little bit, but I, and I pull up the stats for wins and street stock division and the names there because of the ladder system. I mean, there's everybody. I mean, you're on there, of course, but there's everybody that is like a late model champion and some of the best drivers at Thunder Road, their names are etched in granite. Um, you know, and the coolest part is I have more wins than most of them, but it isn't because I'm very good. It's because they got the heck out of the division fast enough. And that's the other neat part about it is like, holy cow, you know, you got people that have been doing this for a really, really long time mixed with rookies. So like when Tom was talking about that, it's like, yeah, that's what also makes it so exciting. There's so many times where people have come up to me, um, whether their kid is signing my hood because it's race to read stuff, or they're just talking to me about it. It's your guys' show was the best again. Like street stocks is the division to watch. Even when they put it at the end of the show, we stay. And in fact, I think the track's putting at the end of the show because they know you're the best too. And I, I can't even tell you how many times I've heard that. And um, when you're in, when you're strapped in and you're doing it, you don't realize what exactly the product looks like. 
Um, but you know, when those, when that many people keep coming up to you and telling you that, that, um, you got something and it's exciting. And like I said, if the stories that some of these, some of these people have, um, that are behind the wheel are as good as the, as the racing was, at least as I remember it. And as I see it now, um, we're, we're in for, we're in for a real treat. In my announcing gig at Devil's Bowl, I try to build up our mini stock division in the same way that, that what you just said, that we put them last mostly because they, the skinny tires tear up the dirt track. <laughs> we want to have the best surface that we can, but is the best show of the night. Absolutely bar none. Last week we had 30 cars out there um, and it was fantastic. And the pits are open at the end of the night. And I always tell the fans stick around. This is the show that you paid your money for. Um, hmm. It's the same at Thunder Road. It's the same at Bear Ridge. It's the same, no matter where you go, it's always the best racing. There's something about how, you know, even when you watch NASCAR, there's probably a handful of people saying, oh, I could probably do that. But when you go to your local track and you have an entry level, you're like, you probably could do that. Like everyone could try. I've seen worse people than someone off the street try to drive a street stock. So like anybody really could do it. And I think that connection to the fans where, you know, like anybody could literally pay a few grand or have a friend that'll throw a roll cage in a car for you and actually go and race that closeness of the the ability or even if it's just a fantasy for them it's so much closer like to me man like that's that's really what connects folks too right so um that connectivity to the product um i think is what really enhances it for for folks and hopefully that spills over in what we can do with the crunch bunch podcast through uncommon media i i again i can't be more excited about the prosperity of this uh, venture because man there's so many cool people that i know already and then a bunch that you've listed from back in the day that i don't know yet and um i'm really excited to to learn more about people um the other part about what i do at uvm is um you know interviewing people and understanding what's going on um i study organizational structure and organizational uh culture and i like to to talk to people about that. And so interviewing is part of that process and trying to understand how things work um, within an organization. And so I, I just like, and I, I just like talking to people anyway. So um, I feel like we're really going to get to the bottom of some pretty cool stories uh, through this. Kind of give us an idea of how you want it to sound. We, I mean, when we had our first long meeting together, we were pretty adamant that we didn't want you to try to be, the uncommon deeds podcast we wanted it to be yours and you to do it how you wanted to do it so how do you kind of give the people an idea of what it may sound like yeah i mean i think these kind of things evolve over time anyway i think in the beginning i mean i know so many of these drivers that i want to interview and i know them personally i've raced against them um, many times we've had dust ups and sometimes you become best friends after that, that journey of personal and kind of semi-professional relationship. Um, there's so many, so many rich stories in there. Um, I want to just make it sound like I'm sitting down and we're just, just having a conversation and telling stories from back in the day. Um, to me, that would be the real feeling that, um, I'd like to get out of it. And as we start to get into some folks that maybe I don't know as much, um, then I think my kind of intellectual curiosity and some of my professional training would kind of come out and saying, like, I really want to dig deeper and learn more about this person. Um, they have their stories too. So I feel like there'll be a good mix of both those things, but I really want it to feel 
conversational, you know, telling stories um, because I do have a, a rich history with a bunch of people that I know will be great interviews. Well, I hope that I get on that show as a guest at some point because <laughs> my God, we've got some stories to tell. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you know, it made me when you were talking about the people that are on that win list that I wasn't necessarily thinking of, but Jamie Fisher, Joey Becker, Nick Sweet, uh, Jason Corliss, Chris Mashad, and these are just guys I'm I'm thinking of off the top of my head who came through that system and have that experience. I think Marcel Gravel is an outstanding uh, choice. You know, somebody that, that you could talk to. He's the track record holder in the Milk Bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for all time at this point. And, you know, you battled with him fender to fender. You, you let him win. <laughs> you let him win one day. Um, you, you say that to just him next really time. Cool. Yeah. I might send him a message right now. <laughs> should. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's just something that uh, I really think that this is, you know, maybe, maybe Joe Q race fan doesn't identify with, Shirley Muldowney or doesn't identify with uh, Robbie Crouch because they're just elite, you know, way up here. Mm-hmm. Um, but to see where some of these kids come from and, and realize what, l- listen, what my first fire suit, uh, I got secondhand from Jamie Fisher. And when I put that fire suit on, as a junior in high school for the first time, I gained 10 horsepower just standing there <laughs> because it was like an electric charge. You just, you feel sort of like, Oh my God, if he can do it, I can do it. Um, and, and I think that race fans will identify with, with some of these, you know, the crunch punch. That's, that's who we are. Yeah. And I don't know how you guys feel about this, but for me, um, I've done live TV around, you know, concussions and stuff like that on, on different stuff. And I've done live radio before. And I think uh, we did something at the track, I think once and there was a live feed and I photo bombed like the, the reporters. So like, yes. like it, was, it was great. Yeah. Elena Pinto, I think it was right. I think she's yeah. in Boston now, but uh, yeah, I mean, right. that's, right. A, I feel like there might be an opportunity at some point to be able to think about how we might be able to do this live with call-ins. Heck who knows, man. So um, I'm comfortable with all of that. Um, so I don't know. I feel like we'll evolve as it comes and, um, it'll, it'll continue to be fun. And also, you know, if we generate enough people that, um, that give us feedback, like, I mean, go to the fans, whatever they think is interesting or what they think they want or what they, you know, what they demonstrate that they need and want like, heck let's follow that. I'm into it. Um, give it a try, see what happens. Like, uh, I feel like being flexible, like being an athletic trainer, you don't know when someone's going to change practice time or when there's a rain delay or when someone tears their ACL or gets a concussion, you just got to be ready. And you don't know what the heck's going to happen. And that's kind of always been my life. So whatever happens, like, yeah, we'll figure it out. So I'm into, you know, being flexible and, and uh, kind of rolling with the punches. It took only about 15 seconds to get a response from Marcel. <laughs> When I mentioned MJ, he said, uh, yeah, he gave me a couple very fair lifts, then passed me and promptly almost spun out of four and gave it back. That's exactly right. He chose to lift no take backs. Love that guy. (laughs) And then I think the turnabout is fair play because 
There's a picture. I said, I think on his birthday on Facebook, I, I posted a picture. Might have been, I don't know, might have been Kyle Streeter because he was the other person in that podium. But I think they had a couple bad restarts and they basically put them behind row two with like three to go. And I ended up taking the pole instead of being in third and w- walked off with the win. And I, <laughs> in MJ, you could see him in victory lane pictures like mm, he's not very happy. And so um, that's my favorite picture. Because I felt like that was finally where <laughs> it all comes back around. The racing gods know. And whether it's Tom Curley upstairs going, those damn front row doesn't get this start right one more time. I'm moving them back. And that's exactly what happens. Hey, maybe Tom Curley is a racing god. And that's exactly how it's supposed to happen. So fine by me. <laughs> I love it. What Probably one of the more important questions. How often do people mix you and Aaron Maynard up? Mm, oh, my God. Never. Never. Although I will say when I first moved here, having, you know, living in Fairfax, which is right next to Milton and having an A first name, I, people thought I was the long lost brother of the Maynards, especially when I got to the track. In fact, my first picture in the paper was opening day, like 2005, I think it was. And I'm in like the free press or something. I can't even remember what the heck was going on. And Aaron is like looking in my car and I remember the guy from Associated Press was writing the story or whatever. And then he was talking to us. And then Aaron, like, said, my name's Aaron Maynard, for the record, no relation. And so the caption underneath the picture, I still have it. The caption underneath the, the picture in the paper was like, Aaron Maynard inspecting Al's car, no relation, parenthetically, no relation. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, so no one really mistakes the two of us. And even when the first time public knowledge came out via print media, which is also not really a thing anymore so much, um, it was very clear, especially from Aaron's point of view, that we are not family. Um, but I would say since then, we've generated a little bit more of a of a family and friendship for sure. Like third um, cousins. So- Sure, something like that. As long as it doesn't get me in any trouble, which generally speaking, it might. So I always have to tread those waters carefully. Like, are you related to any other Maynards? I'm like, not a single one. I came, I just fell out of the sky. <laughs> That's generally how I want to avoid most of those things. But uh, yeah, so no, I don't get mistaken for them uh, or Aaron too often. Um, we've been in the same places enough that that doesn't happen too much. Marcel also wanted to mention that he did pay you back by letting you sub in his late model at one point. Well, that's true, but it was graduation night for his brother, right? And so this, I'm going to save the full story for when I get to interview him, which I hope he'll do. I know know he'll do, Um, but I didn't end up getting to take the green in the feature. And so if you really want to know the whole story, you'll have to wait for that episode with MJ. Cliffhanger. But, um, I like it. Yeah, I'm into it. But yeah, yes. that I was holding out hope, holding out hope that it might happen. I know that we had laid down a really fast time, even though it was like, take a lap, get the hell off the track. Um, but those tires were saved up. I, I want to say he had a shot at winning that from last because he wasn't there. He wasn't the driver that had qualified it. So he came almost from last to first, I think, in that race. And I'm going to take most of the credit for not having run a whole lot of laps on the tires. And so they were really good tires. But um, there's a much bigger, better story that that goes full circle on that one. So we'll save that for a later date. He just Facebook messaged me, of course. Uh, (laughs) 
one thing that <laughs> one thing that I think is important here that we that we discussed that we haven't yet is that uh, we've got a couple partners that have signed on with us um, that we want to recognize and and I think the the tipping point for them was that we're doing this new Crunch Bunch show. Uh, they're going to support you know both shows, but uh, Brian Hoare uh, decided to come on board with with GosCars.com and Donnie Yates uh, with Yates Auto Body, and those are two guys who are. Donnie has deep, deep roots in the four-cylinder crunch bunch, mm-hmm. not only the Warriors, or not only the street stocks, but also the Warriors. Um, and Brian is now planting roots in that division with mm-hmm. his daughter, Taylor. So um, these are some guys that are going to have some perspective. Not only are they, they're not only they're going to be sponsors of our, of our stuff, but they're going to have, you know, active depth and perspective of what this is all about. That's exciting too. I mean, that also tells you just generationally how things come around and go around. So, um, yeah, it's really, that's really cool. And so, you know, the legwork of being able to get to this point, um, and having built what you all built with, uh, uncommon deeds, obviously this is only episode 20. Um, so, I mean, this is just the beginning and, uh, to be able to land sponsors and stuff like that is just a testament to the great job that you guys are doing. It's mostly by accident. <laughs> I'd rather be lucky than good. Yeah. Or a combination of both. Yeah, I'd like to think sometimes. we're a little good. <laughs> yeah, I was certainly just speaking yeah, for myself. Right. Yeah. I know. I was Justin was <laughs> Justin was saying lucky. I'd like him to give us a little bit of credit. But you know. Uh, Humility goes a long way. Tom, way more credit. I will give Tom way more credit than I give myself on this deal. I, I might have some connections, but Tom literally makes us sound good and makes it professional. And it would be a hack job if I didn't have him. Um, yeah. <laughs> Anywho, uh, do you want to do quick hitters lo- for this I love one, you, Justin? Tom. Love you too, buddy. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I've got, yeah, well, I think, I think we've got some great quick hitters lined up for you. I feel like uh, you're going to give us the best answer out of I broke out a new question the last few weeks, and I haven't really got the results out of it I wanted. But uh, as long as I don't end up looking like Corliss when he was like brain destroyed trying to come up with an answer. So, (laughs) you know, Jason, if you're watching, if you're listening to this, like I'm not picking on you too much. I know you you're busted up. I'm ready, though. Who? is one of the most underrated drivers you went against. Maybe someone that didn't have the notoriety name, but you thought, man, that guy or girl could really drive. Nobody. They're all terrible, terrible drivers. All of them. I'm kidding. Um, I, (laughs) I think at the time, Kelsey Woodard, because she, I mean, certainly now people are starting to understand for sure, like, this kid can drive. I think I think in particular, I watched her very quietly. There was a lot of – there were other drivers that were, you know, more in the spotlight than her, um, which I think was a shame because she was learning, getting better, and becoming a really excellent race car driver. And I think she flew under the radar a lot. And um, I had a lot of conversations with her. Um, over the, you know, a couple of years she was in street stocks and really, um, I think we talked about it earlier was like respect and wanting to kind of work together and, um, get better. 
And I think that was always there with her. And that, um, again, I think she was overshadowed by some other uh, drivers in the division at the time. And she really, uh, I, I really felt like, especially at the time, she she was much better than the finishes she was getting. And I think it's because she was being smart. She was learning. She was taking care of her equipment. And that's what's really paid off. And now you see the product today. Like, she is, she's a tremendous race car driver. Um and now as we talk about this, like now we just add to the list of people that we need to interview for, for crunch bunch, because um, yeah, I feel like, especially at the time, not anymore, right? Like she's not underrated now. Like she's a heck of a race car driver. Um, if I had a late model, I'd, I'd put her in it. Um, so yes, uh, that, I think at the time she was, she was very underrated, but, um, but it's really come around. Oh, I know, you know, my question. And, um, I can think of some answers already having seen them firsthand, but what is the dumbest thing you have done in a race car? Good grief. There's so many. And like, which race car we raced 24 hours of lemons together at New Hampshire motor speedway road course. Oh, that's true. We've done really, really yeah. dumb stuff together even. So that list is really long. 24 hours behind the, the wheel of an Impala grocery getter at new hampshire um that's dumb to begin with you unload dumb there pretty much with no breaks no no we detonate breaks every every chance we get um man i i really would have to man i remember the outside isn't wasn't very good especially after the repave and where we used to be able to do really well we couldn't anymore, um, but I felt like I could get to the outside of the 04 that one night. Who's it? Who drives the 04? Uh, Scott Weston. Scott Weston. So I, I see him and he's plowing, and I'm like, all right, I I I can get by him. And it was like the leader's starting to stretch out. And that was like, I think he was like in third or fourth and he's holding on for dear life. And he's got the wheel cranked to the left and there's smoke rolling off that right front. And I'm like, man, all right, I'm sending it. And I could look in my mirror and see that everyone was in a straight line. No one was going to the outside. So I'm like, all right, I'm going for it. And so I get to the outside in one and two, I'm coming around. And three and four, I'm like door handle the door handle. So I'm making about, I'm making about five or six feet per corner. I'm like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to clear him here. And doesn't his right front blow and take me about 12 feet up in the catch fence and destroy our car. (laughs) And uh, I mean, the pictures from that are pretty epic, but that choice in particular was like, Mm -hmm. I don't think I needed, I didn't need the points. I didn't need the trophy. I didn't, you know, and I sure as heck didn't need the headaches. Um, But that was one of the dumbest things. The good thing is it has a has a silver lining because the next the next week was um, the fifty lapper, and our car was like destroyed. And I was like, "Well, I'm going to Watkins Glen because it's always the same weekend." And I'm like, "I'm out." Like, guys, don't touch this car. I'm done. And so while I'm gone, two things happen. You got Bunker Hodgson puts a ten on his car for the fifty lapper, so I get points for that. And while I'm gone, it. At, um, at Watkins Glen in New York, Eddie and Aaron and a bunch of guys get together and they put in Chad Letourneau and all these guys like from the crew and even other people put the car back together. And, and I get like a text. It's like a video text from like Eddie, like, 
yep, we're almost done. And I'm like, I don't know what y'all are talking about. Did you build a brand new car? Because I don't understand. And basically they had in just a few short days. Um, so it turned from one of the dumbest things I did in the silly little thing, like someone blowing a tire and, um, and it ended with one of the most amazing outcomes of all those years of dedication and friendship that you built up and, you know, helping each other and caring about each other so much that, you know, ended in that, which, you know, for me, like that was one of the most amazing things that ever happened. I mean, put the car together again in such a short period of time, it was like less than a week. I mean, it was, there was no, there was no save in that car. And somehow we did. And we're, I think we were faster car turned better after that. I think it was shorter and definitely twisted, but uh, I think it, I think it actually got faster. It might've even knocked some parts off of it that made it faster. I don't know. Um, that was the dumbest thing. And, but the outcome is, was a good one anyway, in the, in the long term. And, uh, final question. I just came up with it now. Perfect. What's the dumbest thing you've ever done with Justin St. Louis that doesn't involve a race car? Holy. (laughs) Well, I'm pretty sure in mixed company, we can't tell half of these stories. Do go-karts count? (laughs) Sure. <laughs> As race cars? Because yeah, if they do, man, that seems to be <laughs> – that was uh, – going to Canada, which Nick Sweet can attest to, obviously, in his episode, but man alive. like we, yeah. <laughs> Canada is a crazy place and crazy things happen. And um, But let me see. Uh, outside of racing? I mean, we've jumped through fires in your yard and we've yep. done that happened. really dumb things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe more will come out in some of these episodes. I'd, I'd love to have a segment where, you know, Justin comes in and talks about dumb things we've done together. I feel like that's a reasonable thing. There's a long list, um, but it's hard to narrow it down to just one. I so think. Al has a <laughs> Al has a pool that is not deep in his mm. yard. It's uh, like maybe two and a half or three feet. Get out of here! It's like four feet deep. Stupid, dangerous <laughs> things. Get out of here yourself. It's not deep at all, and we have done some really stupid mm. injurious things in that pool over the years. And just so you know, now there's a trampoline next to it. Um, so, yeah. So, so more to come, Tom, that's a great question. And you'll have to stay tuned. Once again, this cliffhanger will be who dies uh, in the next month or two um, at Al's pool. It'll be me. It will probably be Justin. It'll so be maybe. Well, and so my question to you, Justin, is what would you want your epitaph to say, sir? Probably something I can't repeat on on the air here. Um, Jesus, I'll have to come up with something. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. You put me on the spot. I'm going uh, to turn it about. Yeah. Uh, well, my epitaph would say, if I die doing something cool at Al's house. Um, <laughs> that works. You know, I don't care if there's an epitaph. Just put a picture of uh, me with the Captain America shield shaved in the, my in my back hair hmm. just just superimpose that picture onto the gravestone that's what see it's that kind of dumb stuff that, that really yeah those answer lots of questions but i don't i don't know if that's yeah. the stupidest thing i've ever done but just the stupidest thing justin's ever done around me that's the long list really that's the long list you know, yeah. maybe we'll just when justin and i are recording our episode i'll record a two and a half three minute story of something dumb that you two did. And then I'll put it in your episode and you'll have to listen to your own episode to see where I dropped in 
the Justin Love stupid it. story. Figure it out. It sounds perfect. So get a short list. Actually, we should probably put up a poll at some point after this airs to find out um, what what people want us to shave in your back hair this year. I feel like we, we want the fans okay. to really have some say. So that's the that's the gift that keeps on giving um, mm. because every time I go to the beach with my wife and daughter uh, for the next two months, that's uh, all the dads going. Oh, awesome! That guy's awesome. And then the mm. the, the mom's going. Oh, Jesus. Well, we have a yeah. new logo to promote, so and, I'm and just wife I'm is, just saying one of them. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you, Al, for uh, really helping us out as we were in a pinch tonight. Uh, and I think you gave some really good, profound answers, and I think are setting people up for hopefully a uh, a good podcast coming in a couple weeks. Yeah, happy to pinch hit anytime, and um, yeah, I think the timing's perfect actually. So you know, racing gods strike again. Here we are, um, building something that's going to be amazing. I mean, you just keep using hyperbole, just like you, Tom. It's going to be the best ever. Stuff like that. Big fan of hyperbole. Mm. Well, everybody, make sure if you're listening on Apple, leave us that five-star review. Subscribe. Tell all your friends. Make sure to follow us, Uncommon Deeds, on Facebook and Twitter. Uncommon Deeds podcast on the Instagram. We still have some of our new Uncommon Deeds decals. If you have not gotten any and you would like some, all you have to do, shoot us a message on Facebook, on Instagram. Let us know. Give us your address and we will get some decals out to you. Keep sending us pictures of where you're sticking your decals. We're starting to get a bunch, and it's really cool to see our decals on race cars and go-karts and everyday drivers and laptops. Makes us feel special. We will be back next week with another guest. We're going to try to uh, try to knock your socks off. But you know what? The weather's getting hot. The sun's been out. You probably shouldn't have your socks on anyway. Get your sandals on. Get your flip-flops, your slides, whatever your preferred open foot shoe is. You probably should be on anyway. But if not, we're going to try to knock your socks off next week. Keep listening for updates on the Crunch Bunch podcast. I believe the plan is for Al to try to record episode one this coming week. And we'll get that edited And we'll maybe get one more in the can before episode one comes out. So keep listening right here. Keep checking on the Facebook page for updates on that. But that does bring to a conclusion episode 20 here on Uncommon Deeds, a production of Uncommon Media.